Greenfield Research. It's both mostly going to be about the chapter I'm about to write, um, but I'm going to be giving you a lot of background because I think contextualizations are important in this case. Um, so the title of my thesis, as it stands at the moment, is called Making Cultures Count. And this refers to the Mayakwai study of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander well-being, which is a national longitudinal study in Australia that's just been established uh, and is looking to quantify the relationship between Indigenous cultural factors and health and well-being outcomes. So just to give you an overview of today's talk, I'm just going to clarify a couple of the terms that I use um, and then also just give you uh, a bit of context about how Indigenous health is measured in Australia. Um, I'm then going to be giving you an overview of my research, including what describing what the Mayakawai study actually is, um, and then talk about what the focus of my research is, and just a brief overview of my thesis structure so you understand where this talk is situated within the rest of my research. Um, then I'm going to be talking about uh, my chapter four, as I said, yet to be written, so feedback today would be wonderful. Um, I'm going to talk about two particular um, cases of Indigenous community feedback that has happened during the process of the study. Uh, and I'm going to talk about how I analyse data um, from these feedback groups and the culture model that I've come up with based on the feedback. And then I'm going to give a summary of the talk and just starting off the conversation with a couple of questions that would help me. Okay, so clarifying points. When I talk about culture, um, we might all be aware of what the culture debate is in anthropology. Does it exist? Does it not exist? What is it? Uh, is it local? Is it global? Um, but when I talk about culture here, culture for Indigenous Australians, including myself as Indigenous Australian, is a really sort of concrete concept. It's a reality. People talk about it on a daily basis, like um, referring to their identity, the languages they speak, things like that. Um, and it can refer to traditional aspects of culture like songs and stories and dances and traditional artifacts, or it could refer to modern aspects, um, people thinking about their identity and how they participate today. Um, so when I talk about culture in this presentation, that's what I mean. Uh, and has anyone seen this map of Australia before? Stanley, Go I knew you were. <laughs> Um, well, this is a representation of the broadest level of cultural groups, Indigenous cultural groups in Australia. So you can see that there is a huge diversity. Um, and my, I can't quite see the little um, names, but my grandmother's family came up from here. So this is Western Australia, titled because it's in the western part of Australia. Uh, from here in the Kimberley region, and then on my father's side came from Gamilaroi country here, which is situated in New South Wales. Um, but you can see there's a huge diversity, and this is something that um, I really try to emphasise, and the study really tries to emphasise with its focus on Indigenous culture. <coughs> so, when we're thinking about how Indigenous Australian health has been surveyed in the past, you have to really realise that there is a huge lack of historical data. And that is because Indigenous Australians weren't even included in the census until 1967. And it was only after that point um, 
that people really begin to come together and talk about what are the issues facing Indigenous Australians and health was kind of the for, at the forefront of this. So the first national report on health was published in 1979 and one of the major findings from that was that the life expectancy of Indigenous Australians was more than 20 years. This is on average more than 20 years below the rest of the population. Um, and what's happened since then is that there's always been this comparison between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, which meant that it's the whole scoping has really homogenised Indigenous people and say everybody's the same everywhere, and also that they're not as good in terms of health or other factors than non-Indigenous people. And what we call this um, in academic circles uh, in Australia is the deficit discourse. So the, the idea that Indigenous Australians um, experience deficits and that everything is framed in a very negative way. Um, so current measures uh, of including the national um, census and other health studies measure physical, mental and social aspects of Indigenous health, but they rarely touch on cultural determinants. Um, and this is what the Maya Kauai study is really making its campaign. It's focusing on culture, it's focusing on how Indigenous people define their own well-being and their own health um, and how that can, the different ways that that can be expressed. So, talking a little bit more about the Mayakwai study, it began its development in 2014, um, as I said, to address this lack of big data. Um, and it aims to understand the relationship between cultural factors and health and well-being outcomes. I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that. But what that study wants to do is develop these cultural indicators um, that they've used in a survey uh, and the creation of large, a large-scale database that can be used for future health uh, and other sorts of policy and program planning. Um, so I just want to show you the website because this has really been developed a lot in recent months because the survey's out. Uh, and I just want to give you an idea of what it looked like. So you can see it's really sort of pretty jazzy. Little bit of information there. They started this uh, marketing campaign where they use community ambassadors. Uh, and I'm going to show you a couple of examples. But here you can see right away, take the survey. Um, so where was it? There we go, ambassadors. So I'm going to play you a couple of videos so you get an idea of the sorts of people that are involved with the project. And the first one I'm going to play is this guy, Dr. Ray Lovett. He is the study founder. He's a guy in charge. He's also Indigenous, as most of the people working on the program are. Um, and I'm just going to let him speak for himself and why he was involved. But just a bit of context, both of the videos I'm going to show talk about the stolen generations, which in Australia is um, was a policy, an assimilation policy administered by the Australian government that removed Aboriginal children from their families and placed them in institutions to be, most of the time, to become domestic workers. So I thought I'd just put this up. This is actually the first page of the survey where people just fill in their data and things. But I want to emphasise that this study is being governed um, by Indigenous researchers and community partners. And they have this protocol um, called Indigenous Data Sovereignty, um, which touches upon um, the United Nations Declaration of 
uh, Indigenous people's rights, which includes the right of Indigenous peoples to govern the creation, collection, ownership, and application of their own data. So the survey has already been mailed out, um, and it's also available online, but it's been sent out to 200,000 Indigenous Australians who have been identified using the National Medicare Database, Australia's version of the NHS. When you first sign on to receive health care, there's usually a box that you tick saying, yes, I'm Aboriginal, or yes, I'm Torres Strait Islander, or both. Uh, and this is how these people have been identified. And a conservative estimate is that between, they're going to get between 60,000 and 40,000 surveys completed with the first cohort. And if they got this, even at the 16,000 mark, that would be the biggest um, cohort of Indigenous Australians collected ever. In so bigger than the national surveys. Um, so this is really, I'm trying to emphasise that this is not just localised, it's nationalised. Um, and they're going to be conducting a follow-up every three to five years, depending on funding, funding where they'll rerun the survey and recruit new people, and so it cycles on. Um, so the survey that they've produced has been divided into six sections. Um, the first is talking about identity, language, culture and community. So things like how do people identify, is it through their mother or their father, where in Australia do they identify. Uh, it also talks about language use um, from people who are fluent in one language or multiple languages to people who only know just a few words here and there. Um, this idea of cultural knowledge and practice, what sort of cultural activities do people participate in? And then what is their impression of their Indigenous community? Do they feel like um, they're a part of the community? Uh, and then they're also collecting just general social demographic factors like age, sex, things like that. Um, then also the health factors, self-rated health, life satisfaction. They're asking about medications and health conditions, uh, mobility. Um, so not just people who are disabled, but people who have a limited ability to participate in life. Um, and then what sort of health care is accessed. Uh, three other sections touch on alcohol, smoking and gambling. Um, it also talks about people's experiences of participating in Indigenous programs and services that are in their communities. Uh, it also touches upon discrimination or racism experienced in everyday life, and then also specifically in healthcare. Um, and it also talks about worries in the family and community that people have. The final section is talking about family support and connections, so caring. Do you have children or do you care for others? Um, and talking about people's connection with mission stations and reserves. I mentioned that part of the stolen generations were people who were removed from their families and so they lost, a lot of people lost that connection, traditional connection, and that can have an impact on someone's well-being. So my research. Um, this is one of the posters, so uh, she's one of the ambassadors. They're going to have these sort of posted around the place at bus stops, you know, in health centres, uh, just to get people aware of the study. So I'm focusing my research on how the study conceptualises the cultural determinants of health. Um, and in order to do this, I'm focusing on how the study has developed the cultural indicators that they use in the survey. And this, I'm coming at this from three different angles. First has been the initial development. Um, so what are the research perspectives on what is culture and how they're going to measure it? 
Then I'm looking at community feedback. So in developing this survey, they went around to a lot of different Indigenous communities in Australia to ask people what part of culture is important here, or what parts of culture are important here, and to road test the survey um, so they could develop it as they went along. And then the next part is going to be looking at the survey questions. So I'm going to see how the survey differs from when it first started out, uh, when they first submitted it in 2016, to what it looks like as in its final version now, and what's changed and why. So my data collection began remotely. When I was in Oxford, I was just in email contact, asking for resources and seeing how things were happening. Uh, and this included seven months where I travelled to Australia in two blocks um, to conduct interviews, do participant observation, go along to some of these focus groups. And in October and November last year, I did some follow-up interviews just to see, because that was when the study was launched, I just wanted to see how things have progressed since I left the field. So I collected semi-structured interviews with researchers, administrators, and other stakeholders involved in the study. I also did some participant observations of the focus groups I mentioned, different team meetings where they discussed the survey, uh, and then conference presentations. And then I also have a digital archive of materials that the researchers uh, and administrators have put together, uh, and that dates back to January 2016. So I've got a really good amount of stuff and different sorts of data to work with. Uh, this is just to give you an idea of the people. These are the people that I interview um, <coughs> multiple times in some cases, just to give you an idea of the different sorts of perspectives I've got. So you've got Ray Lovett, who you heard from the first video up the top. He's sort of kind of got his fingers in all the pies in terms of what's going on with the study. Then you've got the researchers. Um, some of them are working on it like one or two days a week and then some people only have very ad hoc input. Uh, and then we've got the professional staff who are the day-to-day -day engine of how it's being developed or has been developed. Community partners, so people who represent national or local Indigenous organisations that wanted to get involved. Uh, and then funding partners. So this is a multi-million dollar project. It's being funded by two major health research um, organisations in Australia. And then I also, on my follow-up research, spoke to one of the ambassadors. Um, so why is looking at this study important? Well, it's really groundbreaking. Um, it's been informed by previous surveys of Indigenous health in the US, Canada, and New Zealand, but none of them were this big. Um, another interesting aspect is this idea of the Indigenous research paradigms. The fact that it's led by Indigenous people, that the data is going to be owned by Indigenous people, and the different conversations that are going on in the study about indigeneity and what it means is really interesting to look at. And then, of course, it's a natural anthropological experiment. These people aren't anthropologists. I, might, I call them researchers, but they're really epidemiological, so they, most of them are like data people. They love data. So they don't think of a lot of theory going into this, but of course it is. They just think of the process. Uh, and then I think what my thesis really addresses is what happens to culture and health when you expand it beyond the local? So what happens around how we talk about culture and how we think about culture when we stop thinking of those specific things that happen in specific places? So just a little overview of my thesis structure. Um, there's an introduction where I introduce 
what's happening in the health landscape in Australia. I'm going to talk about the cultural concepts in anthropology and epidemiology, uh, and then just a little overview of the study itself. I then go on to my methodology and methods. And my chapter three, Epidemiological Perspectives, talks about the researchers' viewpoints that I mentioned before and how they've thought about this idea of culture. Uh, chapter four, which I'll talk about today, are the community perspectives. So these are the focus groups that they conducted. What did people talk about? Um, and I'm gonna, I conducted an analysis of that, which I'll present. Um, chapter five is just really thinking about the survey and how it's changed over time. Uh, six, chapter six really addresses what are the researchers' hopes for the future? What do they think this study is going to be you know, in five years and 10 years and 50? Um, and then seven is just rounding it all up hopefully drawing those connections through. <clears throat> okay, so community perspectives. So a total of 24 focus groups were conducted at 13 locations around Australia. Um, 165 people participated in these focus groups, but you can see that there are, most of them um, were female. And the age range of people who decided to disclose their age was between 16 and 78. But um, being in some of the focus groups, it was definitely towards the older people that tended to participate more. Um, um, I went along with the researchers to eight of these locations, and I'm going to talk about two of those today, which I think really illustrate the breadth of the types of focus groups and what sort of data the researchers collected. This is just another diagram of where the focus groups were, so you get an idea of the broad spread. Um, they weren't trying to get, I mean, I think ideally, ideally they wanted to get something from everywhere, um, but really it was more about who in the research team could connect with the community group, and the community groups were, they were volunteering, they were opting in. It wasn't like people going around saying, you should participate. It was more sort of word of mouth. So that's how these focus groups came about. So the first one I want to talk about was one that was conducted on Thursday Island. Um, it is a teeny tiny island there. You kind of can barely see it. Um, at the very northern tip of Australia in this group of islands uh, that can sort of connect Australia to Papua New Guinea. So this was the land bridge, uh, you know, 15,000 years ago. Um, and it's been the main organisational hub for the Queensland government in the Straits since the late 1800s. But it's, it's so small, it's um, 3.5 square kilometres, um, but it is the most densely populated island. And most of these residents identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. But something to note here is that this data comes from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and they don't even distinguish between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So the most broadest you know, category of Indigenous Australians, um, they don't separate it out. So, the, when you come on the plane, um, you can get there by boat, the plane's the easiest, from Cairns. It doesn't even land on Thursday Island because it's so small. You land on Horn Island, which is in the distance there, and you take the ferry across. So this is on Thursday Island, looking at the pier across to Horn Island. This is the shorefront um, of Thursday Island. And when we went there, it was like really, it was really warm. It was in the 30s. 
And I said to Ray, oh, wouldn't it be really nice to just go for a swim in the ocean? And he said to me, do you see anyone swimming? And I said, no. He said, there's a reason for that. Um, crocodiles. Very um, vigilant hunters in this area, and so nobody goes swimming. Uh, this is a perspective from this hill called Green Hill uh, at the top of Thursday Island. That's a perspective of where it's sort of placed in relation to the other islands around. Uh, I can't decide if this dog makes the picture or ruins the picture, but this is taken from a military, a former military fort on the top of the island. Um, because this island was the main organisational hub, it was also a military point where they could monitor ships coming through the straits to Australia. Uh, you see there's an old cannon here. So this is the building where we conducted the focus group. It was just like the local youth and sports centre. It was on the main street, but most of the buildings looked like this and there weren't very many of them. And this is inside where we set up. Uh, and so this is the focus group here around the table. And this is sort of, I'd say, a general representation of what most focus groups look like. So you had, um, we had two older gentlemen here. Uh, this is Ray, you might recognize from the video, and then a few of the other participants around. This focus group was facilitated by Elsie at the top there. Um, she is a former Thursday Island resident, but now lives in Canberra and she works with the, something called the Indigenous Marathon Project, which encourages Indigenous people to get out and run, and some to participate in marathons like the New York Marathon. Um, and so this group here, apart from these two older gentlemen, um, this group was Thursday Island's mini version of that, so it was a group of people who run together. Um, and so I just want to give you a couple of excerpts of what people said in the focus group to give you an idea of the variety of how people talk about culture. So I'll read it out if you don't mind. Okay. So the first participant was one of the elders. He said, I suppose the three tiers that we look at are physical connection, and then you have the two most important that is not seen is your emotional connection and your spiritual, which is number one important factor, because all of our belief system and our connectivity bases on spirituality. It's an everyday thing because we breathe, breathe and live our culture. We don't come Sunday and then worship our culture on Sunday. It's every day. So I think that what I said before, our important factor for the Torres Strait Islanders is really, is actually really recognise our identity to our island and our culture. The rest is actually like an island mat. You just weave it together, you know, because that's who you are. Participant two was one of the younger women in the group. And she said, and like I said, if you don't have that identity, then you're lost in the world. If you just identify as a Torres Strait Islander, you know, tick the box, but you don't have that within you, you don't have that centering or that knowledge of what that actually means to you, I think that's, you do get lost in the world. That is full steam ahead, social media and like. And if you don't have that centre ground at home in your community, where you know where you belong and who you are and what you want to do with your life, you can very easily get drawn out into a world that is very disillusioning. Um, so she was, what she was talking about, she was talking about herself because she didn't grow up in the Torres Strait, she'd moved back there and she had children. So she was talking about them and her worries about them being disconnected from their identity. 
Um, the other focus group I wanted to talk about was in Perth. So this was in Western Australia. It's a major town, uh, a major city. Uh, it was held during uh, the Indigenous Allied Health Conference. So the attendees, there were a couple of hundred attendees, they were from across Australia. Most people were working in health, either as professionals or students of health. Uh, not all of them were Indigenous, but a vast majority were. And so they held this focus group during one of the conference sessions. And they'd set up eight tables, like you can see here, it's got consent forms, a big bit of butcher's paper. Um, and there were around three to nine people per table. I chose, instead of kind of walking around, I chose to sit at one of the tables so I could observe and listen to what people said. And so you can see the table here. Oh. I'm going to just read out a couple of notes from my field diary um, because this wasn't recorded, just to give you a sense of what it was like. Um, all right, I chose this group because they were mostly young, under 35, and there seemed like there wouldn't be a natural leader in the group or elders that would dominate the discussion. So this happened in the Torres Strait Islander one. The elders spoke first, people deferred to them, and then once they had to leave, that's when the younger people really spoke more about themselves. Um, it seemed that having the large butcher's paper helped to focus the group, and a lot of them looked at the writing process. I think it helped to organise people's thoughts and fill in gaps. It was also clear that they were all fairly comfortable with the process, not necessarily practiced, but familiar with the form. The scribe mentioned empathy as a cultural aspect, collectivist, and lack of hierarchy out of the front. One person's achievement is like everyone's achievement. And these are a few different quotes. Uh, an equality thing, but that's not the right word for it. Everyone has value, and everyone can take something and give something. Kinships, that's what that is. I think they're either earned or they're passed on. Uh, I then write, the group then began to speak about other presentations that happened in the conference, including a traditional healing experience that one participant had. He was told that he had a second heart in his stomach, and that was the sadness, and that there was sadness in his lower back. He thought that made sense because he didn't live on country. People then began to fill out the surveys, and I took a couple of photos. One of this, what is this one? One participant took 35 minutes to complete the survey, but demonstrated frustration with how long it was after 15 to 20 minutes. So the survey was really long when they were road testing it. I think the first one took people over an hour to complete, which is exhausting. And they've now got it down to 20 to 25 minutes, which apparently is the ideal survey length. And this is the butcher's paper that they wrote on. So all eight of the tables uh, in this conference session had a piece of butcher's paper and wrote down things on it. So this is an analysis I've done for my thesis. Um, I was looking at focus group data, um, so I'm reading through what was available and picking out keywords. This was my first attempt, so don't judge it too harshly. Um, picking out keywords and phrases that I thought represented culture. Um, it's important to note though, audio and transcripts were only available for eight focus groups that were conducted. And, there were, and then I included the detailed notes from the seven tables 
seven of the eight tables, so one table, I don't know what happened to their butcher's paper, but it's gone, um, in Perth. Uh, therefore, there's only detailed data available, there isn't detailed data available for nine of the 24 focus groups. Um, so the researchers would have taken their own notes, but there's no sort of external material for me to look at. So I just focused on the ones that were available. And these are the sort of, these are my categorization of what people spoke about in the focus groups. And so I've turned it into what I think the different aspects of culture are, and then what are these other external influences or factors that either are influenced by or influence people's culture. Um, and I'm going to talk through a few of those, but you can see that the main ones are this idea of country, so people's traditional homeland connection. Um, <clears throat> law and protocol, so these are the, the way that you behave when you're in a group depending on who you are and who they are. Um, language, uh, indigenous languages, but then also different versions of English, Aboriginal English and Creole. Cultural activities, so I think this is what a lot of people think culture is, singing, dancing, things like that. Um, identity, so how people thought about their identity. And then well-being. Um, so let's go through a few of those. There's a lot of information up here. I don't even know it'll come up very well, but I'll take you through the main stuff. So this idea of country was expressed in different ways. Um, there were people who talked about what living on country meant for them. Uh, and I talked to, I categorized it into aspects and then some of the descriptions because I thought that was an interesting thing. And then here I list the focus groups that mentioned them. So it wasn't, it was very rarely just one focus group that mentioned something totally extraneous. Most of the times things were repeated uh, across the focus groups, which gives you this idea that maybe there are these important factors of culture that are that can be generalised across Indigenous, the diversity of Indigenous groups in Australia. So things like living on country or just visiting country, being away from country was really a source of um, discomfort and pain for some people. Uh, the idea of being connected to country. Uh, so one of the ones mentioned in the Torres Strait was being one of the winds, environments and seas and identifying yourself with the sea and air. So one of the participants described himself as a southeast wind man, uh, and that came from his mother's side. Uh, and then there's aspects of the environment, so just being in nature, in nature, but then also really practical stuff like the threat of feral animals and weeds to sacred sites and areas. Um, and then also animals. Uh, this is actually isn't something that's touched upon in the survey, but it's an interesting aspect of culture that people spoke about in a number of focus groups, talking about dogs, but then also other animals, and just seeing and hearing them and visiting them. Um, I might skip this one, but just to give you a quick overview, law and protocols were things like body language, gendered knowledges, um, how to behave to elders, knowing your storylines, so knowing the stories or traditional things that came from your bloodline um, and stuff like that. Language, pretty self-explanatory. There's Aboriginal and Torres Strait languages, but then also the knowledge of English was sometimes a limiting factor or something that facilitated meetings. 
cultural activities. Um, so things like traditional foods, um, yarning, so that means people gathering around talking to each other, we call yarning. Storytelling, traditional medicines, dancing, singing, teaching. So this is a big one, people are really interested in teaching their kids, passing on that cultural knowledge. Um, hunting, men's and women's groups, different events um, that were held. Gardening was mentioned in the Torres Strait. Sharing, humour, music, art, things like that. Um, identity. So this was one that was mentioned a lot, and particularly the word family. People really associated this, the concept of family with Indigenous cultures. Um, so thinking about family support in times of need, respect for family, knowledge of family stories, traditions, um, looking after the family, what are the different roles uh, and traditions behind it, and then where they are um, and who are your friends. It's like a kind of socialisation aspect there. Then there's the more traditional or even anthropological word kinship, um, which people did use, so knowledge of who you were and how you fitted into the grand scheme of things and where you came from. Totems, um, so some people identify with particular animals or places and that was their totem that they carried around with them. This idea of indigeneity, which is something I touch a lot, will touch a lot upon in my thesis, so what does this mean in different contexts? Feeling indigenous and then being indigenous and what that really meant. Um, history, community, women were mentioned once here, but then there was also is kind of like an undertone that women were very important. And then social media, um, not something that the survey touches upon either, but they said the potential of Facebook for staying in touch, which I think is an important thing, given that we're all getting a little bit more globalised and technologically advanced. Um, ideas of well-being. So they talked about family well-being, ancestral strength, so getting strength from the ancestors. This sense of harmony and balance was really important. Being balanced within knowing who you are and how you fit in the world. Um, and then they also talked about loss. Perth 7 did, but there was an undertone in some of the other ones as well. This idea that if you've lost aspects of your culture, like people from the stolen generations, then that really affected your well-being. Um, all right, this is a more, you know, biomedical stuff. So health conditions, some things you'd probably expect in their diabetes, cardiovascular disease, but then there's also things like lupus and gout, which I thought was weird. Um, you don't really expect to see that. Uh, and then mental illness, and then health behaviours, alcoholism to deal with trauma. Uh, drug abuse, especially with younger people. So younger people are mentioned a lot. I touched on one of the other categories, but the younger people are mentioned a lot because I think because most of the focus groups had older people in it. So colonisation. So this is um, one of the influences that I've decided should be a category. Um, things like stolen generations, intergenerational trauma. Um, so Ray mentioned um, one of his grandparents was a stolen generation person, how that really affected him today. Uh, relocation, so not being actually in a space where you can connect with your traditional homelands. Uh, and then other aspects, Western foods, um, Christianity, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, 
or not a neutral thing, um, racism, and issues with the Australian government still. Uh, issues with the government just talking to a few people and not really caring if they actually represent people or not. Difficulty getting funding for cultural programs. And then there were aspects of social dysfunction that I mentioned. So young people, you see described a lot. Um, sexual abuse, domestic violence, family responsibilities, and older people. Um, they're saying that pubs and pokies are taking older people away from the home where learning used to occur. Only have school to teach young people. So there's an idea of not just young people kind of going out, not caring, but then also there's older people when the community, when the family group used to be at home. This is when the learning and teaching and the knowledge transfer would happen, and maybe that's not happening as much in some places. So this is just to recap you on what culture is and what are the different influences. In summary, I gave those clarifying points, talked about how what culture was in this context, talked about my research, what the focus was, talked about these community perspectives and the focus groups and the cultural model that I've come up with from based on the data. And so I have two questions that would help me to really understand my stuff a little better if you have any insights. Are there any other ways I can engage with and present these cultural concepts in my thesis chapter? And then what do you think happens to culture in health when you expand it beyond the local? Okay, thank you.